Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46. We'll pause just a moment as everyone finds the place. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 33, and He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, and to the the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the word that we have just read. We thank you for your loving attention to us in providing us this word, uh, these words coming right out of the lips of our Master himself, we thank you, Lord, for lovingly preserving this word for us, that we might be instructed by it, that we might be changed by it. Uh, we gather here before you this morning for just that, Lord. We ask that you would be pleased, O Lord, to work in our hearts as we sit before you under your word and as we look to you, O Lord, to be our teacher and guide. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Uh, this morning we come to the last section of what has uh, been called the Olivet Discourse. And uh, this last section concerns a number of the most hated subjects in the Bible, actually. Uh, might as well just get that out of the way right away. Uh, I think the first and foremost would be the idea of a coming judgment, which is the central theme of the passage we just read. Uh, Jesus coming in final judgment, but Jesus also says a lot about his kingship, predestination, and the, doctrine, the doctrines of hell. Um, that's some list of doctrines, isn't it? Um, these doctrines are hated by our fallen nature, and unfortunately, they're all uh, sometimes hated by many inside the church. And oftentimes, as a consequence of this, uh, 
this particular passage of Scripture and other passages that uh, speak along these lines are often skipped, or when they're preached on, sometimes they're abused. Uh, they can be abused in a number of ways. Uh, sometimes they're abused when they're treated as a hobby horse for, for some who have an unhealthy obsession with end times. And there are a proliferation of books that are along that scheme that are very unhelpful. And secondly, I've heard these truths communicated in ways that uh, uh, unhelpful would be the best thing that I could say about it. Um, you recall when Jesus, back in Matthew 23, was pronouncing those woes to the Pharisees. You remember, two weeks in a row, I made reference to his demeanor in doing that. Uh, Jesus pronounced those woes, but he did so in tears. And uh, that should be the, the spirit upon which we uh, communicate these truths. It should be done in a spirit of, of tears. The idea of being eternally lost, I don't know if you've contemplated that much, but if you have, you have probably, and I hope, have come to the conclusion that many others have, including myself, that we don't want this even for our worst enemies. Uh, it is a doctrine that we need to think about from time to time. Um, it's a horrible doctrine, and it's a horrible truth. Um, I want to handle these words this morning with loving sensitivity, but I make no apology for these words. These words were spoken uh, by our Master, by our Lord, and they need to be preached, and they need to be taught on. Um, so let's begin uh, with this final section. I want to handle it under the following headings that I think will be easy for us to to grasp, first and foremost, who will be the judge? Who will be the judge? How will the judgment come? Uh, what will the judgment involve? Why is the judgment necessary? And uh, we'll conclude with a word concerning the permanence of the judgment. So let's take those in order. I think the first one's the easiest one for all of us to answer. Who will be the judge? I think we all know the answer to that, don't we? Who will be the judge? Well, I, I, I probably wouldn't even point this out if it wasn't for something that's going on in our text that needs to be pointed out. And this is the first time in Matthew's gospel where Jesus makes a clear reference that he is king. And that's significant. And some of you who've been around this study for a long time will recall that especially when we began and as we've gone through the study, that we've seen over and over again that one of Matthew's concerns with his gospel is to show that the kingdom of God has arrived. 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 And now the king, has, the king himself makes the announcement. Now Jesus makes the announcement that he is the king of this kingdom. Look in verses 31 and 32 with me. You'll see him identify himself this way. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on what? His glorious throne. Very clear reference uh, that Jesus is making here. Verse 32, before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We can't even imagine what this is going to look like. Uh, the world has never seen anything like this. Uh, it's difficult to uh, imagine what 
Christ will look like in all His glory? And what will He look like seated upon His throne with this vast array of angels uh, gathered around Him? Uh, this is an awesome scene that Matthew is painting for us here. Uh, and all of the nations will be before Him. Verses 31 and 32 also serve to inform us how this judgment will come. Uh, we're told that Jesus will come in His glory. And I want to point out to you a couple of contrasts. There's a number of contrasts that are taking place here. Uh, first of all, let's think about how Jesus came the first time. Uh, especially as we can think back, and, you know, way back in the beginning of our studies. Jesus comes back. He comes the first time in poverty, doesn't He? Uh, he lives most of His life in obscurity. No one had any clue who he was. Well, I, how is he going to return the second time? It couldn't be more opposite, could it? See the sharp contrast. When Jesus came the first time, Isaiah 53 in verse 2 informs us that he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It's not the way he's going to return the second time, is it? He's going to come in awesome splendor and majesty, uh, arrayed with the heavenly hosts all around him. It's going to be completely opposite. And we can think back. It's a little bit hard for us to do this. But the triumphal entry, what we call the triumphal entry, I don't know if you've put this together, but that only happened a couple days before uh, this Olivet Discourse. Uh, we're going to be celebrating that here in just a couple of weeks on Palm Sunday. Then it just happened... A couple of days earlier. Now, how does Jesus enter into Jerusalem? He enters into Jerusalem just the way it was prophesied by him by Zechariah 9.9. He comes lowly, humble, riding on a donkey, which is a sign of peace. He's coming down into Jerusalem in peace. How will Jesus return the second time? He came the first time in his humiliation as we sometimes call it. Taking upon this, himself the sin of the world. How will he return? He will return as judge. We see these contrasts are sharp. And we're told also that Jesus will come with his angels. I've made a lot of noise about that, but let me make a connection. If you look back to Matthew 24, verse 31, what, what did Jesus say there? Jesus says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. We're told in verse 32 that before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another. Uh, this phrase, all of the nations, uh, is meant every human being who's ever been conceived. Uh, it's easy, as uh, Alexander McLaren once said, it's easy to get lost in the crowd here uh, and, and think and it, really in terms of distance from this, but um, we're all going to be present at this scene. Every single one of us are going to be there. There won't be anybody late for this. We're all going to, if you're, if you're chronically late, um, you won't be this time. Um, nobody's going to be late for this appointment. And it's an appointment that's set in time and every one of us will be here. Every one of us will be here. That includes 
children who never saw the light of day. All of those aborted children, they're all going to be present. Every human being who's ever going to be conceived, and that includes you, and that includes me, will be there. So we've beheld the judge. We've seen a little bit how the judgment is coming. Let's move on to what the judgment involves, and this will take the most time to develop. If you look down with me to verse 33, 2533, you see, all of the race will be for the king. And verse 33 tells us that Jesus will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And this language is a little, maybe a little strange to us, uh, or maybe not. We've heard it so many times over the years that it's not strange to us. But um, this language wouldn't have been strange to the first, uh, the original audience who heard this. This was something that was done every day. If uh, we were shepherds in that culture, Every night, especially in the wintertime, we would separate the sheep from the goats. Um, sheep are wonderfully equipped to handle uh, cold weather. <laughs> they have all this wool on them. <laughs> uh, goats are not so equipped. So the sheep, the sheep can be left outside. The goats have to be taken somewhere where they have some kind of shelter. So this idea of separating sheep and goats uh, would have been something that they would have been very familiar with. And the, the shepherd knows the difference. Uh, I've never observed this, but I've been told that uh, sometimes from a distance you can't really tell the sheep from the goats. I don't, I'm not a sheep farmer or a goat farmer. I, I take their word for it. Uh, and, but the shepherd would have known the difference uh, very easily, very easily. Obviously, Jesus is using the sheep to symbolize the righteous and the goats to symbolize the unrighteous. Jesus addresses the sheep first, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's a good place to pause and uh, uh, take in the scenery. Um, these words are going to be incredible. Take yourself as best as we can. I mean, we're, we're really incapable of imagining this scene, but let's do our best and take ourselves there. Imagine seeing Jesus in all his glory and, and the, the mighty angels all around him uh, in this awesome array. And then being told, blessed are you. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I, I think this is going to be one of the most joyous things that we experience in heaven. Because we're going to be, we're, our eyes are going to behold a king that is unlimited in power. He is going to be truly awesome. But our eyes are also going to behold a king who loves us. And it's that combination that's going to be incredible. Not just an awesome king that we would all tremble before. But a king that loves us. Absolutely incredible. And listen carefully to what he's saying. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Uh, Jesus is touching on that doctrine we call predestination here. Uh, make no mistake about it. These things were prepared for us long before we were ever born. But notice what comes next. Verse 35. Jesus says to the sheep, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. It's interesting how the righteous answer him, verse 37. 
Lord, when did we... When did we see you like that? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? They seem to be taken by surprise with this, don't they? You see the element of surprise there? What, Lord, what are you talking about? Lord, we don't remember seeing you hungry or thirsty. We don't remember seeing you in prison or sick. Or, we don't remember seeing any of this. Jesus responds, verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Boy, there's some gems in that verse, isn't there? I mean, the first one we might point to is the alignment, the unity, the union that which Jesus has with all his people. He is so closely brought into union with his people that when we suffer, in a sense, he suffers with us. And when we find relief, in that same sense, he finds relief as well. It's an incredible thing, isn't it? Secondly, there's only one way to be united to Jesus like this, and that's by faith. Faith unites us to our Lord. That's the only way to be brought into this union. And hold on to that, because that's an important part, important key here to understanding this text. Faith is what brings us into union with Christ. Uh, third, the works that Jesus commends his people for seem to be forgotten by them, don't they? That's the element of surprise here. In other words, they seem to have done all these things and then thought nothing about it. They did it out of love for Christ, and then they didn't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. But come to think of it, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? If we think in our study all the way back when we were on the Sermon of the Mount, back in chapter 6 and verse 3, where Jesus says, When you give to the needy, do not let your left, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's what they've done. They've just done these things and didn't think much of them. They were small things. I think that's an interesting point. It's often been pointed out. You read the commentaries. There's a number of commentaries point that out. These are the little things that Jesus is commending them for. The little things that, that as believers we, we should be doing every day and thinking nothing about it. Not one of them is forgotten by our Lord. Not a single one. And His, his recompense is not chintzy, is it? Not at all. Now Jesus turns his attention to his left, to those who are represented symbolically as goats. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And he issues these charges. Verse 43, As a stranger, you did not welcome me. You did not clothe me. You did not visit me. Verse 44, They answer in kind of what seems to be the same way as the, as the righteous, don't they? Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Lord, what are you talking about? We don't remember seeing you like this. And make no mistake about it. I think that if they would have seen him like this, they would have done it. If they would have seen Jesus like this, they, they would have done it. Jesus responds in verse 45. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And we have to ask ourselves a question here. 
What's the difference between the sheep and the goats? It's a pretty important question for, for this, where this text is concerned, isn't it? What's the difference between the sheep and the goats? On the surface of it, and I want to emphasize the surface of it, what it seems like when we read it quickly and we read it superficially is that the sheep are commended because they're generous, they're compassionate, they're merciful, they're caring, they're loving, etc., etc. And those goats, they're the complete opposite. Now you can tell that's not the right understanding the way I'm parsing this. What's really going on here? Well, if Jesus is commending the sheep merely for their performance, and he's condemning the goats merely for their performance, then it would seem that salvation is by works, wouldn't it? We know better than that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it's by grace that you've been saved, and this is through faith. And it's not of our own doing, is it? So what's going on here? What's truly taking place here? What's the fundamental difference between the two? The fundamental difference between the two is the heart. One group has faith. The other group does not have faith. And if we have saving faith, it will produce what? Fruit. It'll produce works. In fact, at the end of the day, that's the only way that we can know if we have saving faith or not. How do we know if our faith is genuine or not? How do we know this? It's by the fruit that's produced. Saving faith always produces works. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So the acts of mercy and compassion and love and care that's done by the righteous is done out of faith, which means it's done out of love and concern for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to emphasize this because I don't want us to get the impression that the goats never did anything nice. I know lots of people who have not bowed their knees to the Lord and Savior, but in terms of speaking on a human level, I would call them generous people. I can think of a number of people that I would say, you know, there's a, in terms of, in terms of just strictly human goodness, I'd say, you know, there's a good guy down the street. You know, I, I, I don't, you know, I, he's not into Christ, he's not into Jesus, you know, but, I mean, if he'd give you the shirt off his back. All of us know people like that, don't we? What's the difference? Difference is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We see how important it is to bow our knees to the Lord and Savior. We see how important it is to surrender to Jesus. We see how important this is. It's not about... Li Listen, if we've got saving faith, we'll live, we'll live a good life. We'll live a life that progressively changes as we go. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In his commentary on these verses, R.C. Sproul counsels his readers this way. He says, quote, Do yourself a favor. Before you go to bed tonight, before you fall asleep, ask yourself, Am I a sheep 
Am I a goat? Is my faith real? What is my destiny? Jesus is going to return one day, and when he does, judgment will happen. Make sure you are prepared. End of quote. Make sure you are prepared. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Those of you who were with us last week, you remember me making a lot of noise about staying awake, being prepared. That was the point of, of last week's message, wasn't it? And I would submit to you that's the point of the first half of Matthew 25, is to stay awake. Be prepared. Why? Jesus is coming. It's wonderful how this connects together, isn't it? Now, someone might be asking themselves this question. They say, okay, well, Jesus knows those who are his, right? Yes, Jesus knows those who are his. Then what's the point? Why is all this judgment stuff necessary? And if you're asking that question, that's a great question. It's a great question, and I can answer that question with one word. Vindication. Vindication. Think about how Jesus came the first time. He came in humility. He lived in, in poverty for most of his earthly life. He lived in obscurity, as I've already said. And what was, the, what was the charges that he was charged with in that hawk trial that he gave? It basically come down to blasphemy. There was never a human being who ever walked on the face of this earth who loved the name of the Father more than Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus would be charged for blasphemy. That was the charge. He hung naked on a cross between two criminals, underwent a form of punishment that was the most cruel known to man at that time, and reserved almost for the most wretched of criminals. Jesus was happy to hang there for the salvation of his people. That's what makes faith so utterly important. God did not even spare his son to provide salvation for us, and to scorn the son is the worst thing we can do. Absolute worst thing we can do. Jesus was spit on. He was mocked. When he returns in judgment, he's going to be vindicated before every human being who's ever been conceived. He's going to be vindicated before the cosmos. It's his right. It's necessary. And we will be there. No one will be late. But secondly, the coming judgment confirms what we all know deep down. And at the end of the day, I think we all understand that there needs to be some form of reckoning, doesn't there? Somehow, some way, all of this needs to be made right. Now, we often, in our unbelief and our sin, will push that clear back into our consciousness and we often kind of function like it's not even there, and in unbelief we, uh, we function like it's not even true. Uh, we force it out of our, our minds, but Jesus is warning us, and, and, and He's not warning us to scare us into His kingdom. That's why I want to handle this material so sensitively. Um, we, we, we would do right to, be, to have some fear here. We would do right to, to be sober about these texts, and if we're sitting here in unbelief this morning, we have every reason to be afraid. But Jesus' point here is not to scare us into the kingdom. His point here is to lovingly warn us. Listen, this is the way it's going to be. It's not 
fear that really brings us to repentance. Romans 2.4 tells us that it's God's loving kindness that brings us to repentance. It's His kindness. And the last warning that He gives us is the most frightening. Look at verse 46. And these, that is the goats, the ones without faith, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Uh, this is a doctrine that's railed against, and we can understand why. Um, the, the doctrine of, of hell is a, is a uh, it's just not a comfortable doctrine. And the more you become in tune with it, the less comfortable it gets. Uh, the more that I've learned over the years about heaven, the more I've learned about hell. And the more I've learned about hell, the more I've learned about heaven. I'm going to tell you right now, I am very afraid of that place. Uh, you want to talk about something that causes fear in my life and in my heart, it is that place. Uh, I am afraid of that place. It's a place where there is no hope. You realize that? It's a place where there's no, like, second chance. There's no, there's, there's no way to get out of there. Uh, once you enter into there, you can't escape. We don't say much about this. And I, I think, um, I, I really think I need to adjust my own preaching and teaching ministry because I don't, I see Jesus saying a lot about this in the Gospels. Um, that's one of the things I like about preaching through the books. I don't choose the subjects. I, next week's subject, you want to know what it is? Turn to, turn to Matthew 26 and read a few verses in. And that's what the next subject's going to be. Whatever is in there, that's what I'm going to be preaching and teaching on. I'm not choosing it. And this is good. This keeps me off my own hobby horses. And it also keeps me studying and keeps me learning. But it also gives us a balance so that we do eventually teach the whole counsel of God. I don't know that I'll live long enough to teach every verse in the Bible. Probably will not. Uh, but at any rate, this is the method that we're going to go by. Now, I, I, I think that the, when we finish up Matthew, we're going to go to Daniel and do the same thing. We need to go back to the Old Testament, look at an Old Testament book for a while. But it'll be verse by verse just like this so that we get that, we get that balance. But I think we need to lovingly communicate this doctrine of hell from time to time. It's not something that I find much comfort in any more than you find comfort in, in listening. Uh, but it's so important, isn't it? Now, can we conclude on a better note? Is everybody up for that? Let's close on the exact opposite. For those with faith, what is the future? You see, it's interesting that that's also in verse 46. It's eternal life. It's eternal life. What's in the future if you're in Christ Jesus this morning? Romans 8.1 sounds so wonderful right now, doesn't it? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, He with His own body and soul covered you and covered me so that we would not endure that. He endured that for us in our place. You see, that's the awesome thing about this whole scene is we're not just going to be before a king who is so unlimitedly and absolutely powerful. We're going to be before a king that so intimately loves us. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Kings usually exploit their people. They ask their people to serve them and they... Uh, 
They exploit them into the ground. But that's not what Jesus does. It's, it's to your loving benefit, everyone, that I go. Because, you see, I'm going to go and I'm going to pre prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be too. How wonderful are those words? Taken from John 14, paraphrased, excuse me for the paraphrase. Got the point, though, huh? Boy, do we have a great future ahead of us. We do probably have a lot of suffering ahead of us before this is over. But think about the future that's before us if you're in Christ Jesus. And if you're not in Christ Jesus this morning, get in Him now and look forward to this future. We get there simply by embracing Him with faith and trust. And then when this day comes, we'll hear those wonderful words. Blessed are you. Inherit these blessed things that have been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. I'd like to close with Sproul's counsel. I found it so helpful. He writes, quote, Before you go to bed tonight, before you fall asleep, ask yourself, am I a sheep? Am I a goat? Is my faith real? What is my destiny? Jesus is going to return one day, and when he does, judgment will happen. Make sure you're prepared. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for so loving us that you would warn us uh, of this day, this great day where you will be vindicated before the cosmos, with, present with all of your angels and every human being whom you've ever created, who's ever been conceived, will be present before you. Oh, Lord, I pray that everyone in this room will hear those blessed words. That everyone in this room will be taken off to Jesus' right and given those ble that, that blessed, blessed benediction. Blessed are you. Inherit these great things that the Father has prepared for you before the foundation of the world. So, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to stand and join me in singing the closing song, Crown of the Wind Crown.